I believe can be helpful. A man by the name of Samson, Judges chapter 13. I'd like you to look at the last two verses of chapter 13, verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. Time is our brief opportunity to fulfill God's purpose in our life. Remember, there is no time in eternity. There are no clocks in heaven or hell. There's no calendar. So time as we know it on earth is a brief opportunity for us to fulfill God's purpose for our life. God uniquely designs each person for this opportunity to fulfill his plan. Now, God created Samson for a specific reason. Uh, He was designed by God to deliver the nation of Israel from their chief enemy, the Philistines. If you go back to Judges chapter 13 and look up at verse number 3, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, Samson's mother, and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So Samson is one of the judges here, and God's design for his life was that Samson would lead the nation of Israel in a final battle against these Philistines that were constantly harassing them. As we said yesterday and and Saturday as well to the young people, God has a purpose for our life. And oftentimes we squander it on the things of our own making or the things this world has to offer. And we miss the opportunity that God has for us. As you look at your life right now, this particular stage of your life, whether you're 17 or whether you're 77, would you be able to say, I am fulfilling God's plan for my life? To this point, have I lived according to God's purpose for my life? So often, I think no matter what our age, we think, well, I've got time for that. You know, right now, I'm busy. Right now, I've got things going on. and, And right now, it's just not convenient or it's not comfortable for me to do God's will. And so I'll get to that later. But of course, we understand there is no guarantee of later. There is no guarantee of time tomorrow. The devil does not care what we do as long as we don't do it today. The devil doesn't care if you get saved as long as it isn't today. As long as he can get you to put that off to tomorrow. The devil doesn't care if you do God's will as long as you don't do it today. The devil is that the author of procrastination, of putting it off, and we think, well, I'll have time to to fulfill God's plan. David Brainerd was a a man that was born uh, many years ago in the 1700s, and 
as a young man, uh, uh, was uh, born into a, a farmer's family uh, there in Connecticut. And uh, David, early on in his life, uh, came to know Christ and had a, a, a passion to serve the Lord with his life. He began to study for the ministry at Yale in uh, 1739. But it became very evident quickly that David's health was not up to par. Uh, there were some problems there. He was weakened often by the stress and the rigors of college. He um, was influenced greatly by the preaching of George Whitfield, and, and uh, Whitfield's preaching flew in the face of many at Yale and other of the uh, colleges of that time with his methodology. And so as D David began to follow uh, Whitfield and Wesley and some of the others in their style of preaching, uh, he became alienated from those at Yale. In fact, at one point, uh, he made a statement that the chair of the ministerial department had no more grace uh, than a wooden door. And uh, for that comment, he was expelled from Yale. He decided that since no churches would have him now in the Presbyterian denomination, that he would go out into the areas where some of the Indians were dwelling, and he began to preach the gospel there. God began to bless his ministry, but his health uh, was a problem, and it wasn't long until he was coughing up blood uh, almost daily, and it was soon discovered that he had tuberculosis. At the invitation of Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd made his way to the home of Mr. Edwards, who, of course, was instrumental in the Great Awakening, preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And, and uh, Brainerd uh, took uh, residence there with, with um, Edwards. And during that time, Edwards encouraged him to write down in a, a journal or a, a, a memoir, if you please, some of his experiences with the Indians and some of the converts that he had seen and the great working of God that God had used him there to, to do. And so he began to write. David Brainerd's life ended at age 29. A name still known to many of us, but a very brief life of just 29 years. And yet because David Brainerd, even though sickly and even though unable to preach in churches, even though unable to preach even in the mission fields that he so loved among the Indians, because of the fact that he was faithful in writing some things down that God had done in his life and in his ministry, God used those writings to influence many others. In fact, William Carey uh, was influenced by the writings of David Brainerd. Uh, later on, Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the uh, Aka Indians there in Ecuador, uh, was influenced to go to the field and try to reach those people because of the writings of David Brainerd. Though just 29 years on this earth, David Brainerd fulfilled the purpose for which God had designed him to accomplish. What about us? Where are we in this process of, of fulfilling God's plan for our life? Samson should have been one of the greatest success stories in all of the Bible. And yet, though most likely to succeed, his life ends in failure. Now, I want you to think with me tonight about a series of steps in Samson's life that turned victory into defeat. 
We see, first of all, a divine plan. We read a moment ago there in Judges chapter 13 and verse 5 that God had raised this man up for a specific purpose, to be a leader, to be a judge, to be the one that would rally Israel to defeat the Philistines once and for all. His parents were obviously very godly people. And when the angel appeared to his mother and began to instruct her as to uh, how she was to live in preparation for bearing this young man, Samson, uh, she listens very carefully and she was not to drink any wine. She was not to eat anything unclean. Samson was to be under the Nazarite vow. We read about that in Numbers chapter 6. It spells it out there. there were, uh, he was to have no wine, no strong drink, no liquor of grapes uh, was ever to touch his lips. Uh, he was not to eat moist grapes or dried. He was to eat nothing from the vine. No razor was ever to be put to his hair. He was never to touch a dead body of any kind. And it all is kind of summed up in number 6 and verse 8 where it says a Nazarite was to be holy unto the Lord. Now you and I are not under a Nazarite vow. Uh, you and I in this New Testament age of grace, God has not placed us under uh, those kinds of restrictions with respect to uh, certain things that we were to do or not to do. But should it not be our desire to be holy for God, to be holy unto the Lord? After all, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And God said we're to be showing forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil among you as an evildoer, they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and your spirit which are God's. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be holy for I am holy. God's plan, his divine plan for our life is not happiness. His plan for our life is holiness. Now, when you live in God's plan, you'll be happy. He promises the joy of the Lord. And, but so often our passion is to just be happy, to just be somehow satisfied, to just somehow have the things that, that we want. God is not calling us to happiness. He's calling us tonight to holiness. And so we see a divine plan. And with this plan that God placed in Samson's life, we see a demonstrated power. Now, Samson's parents took this command of holiness very seriously. They followed God's orders exactly. And Samson's early life, uh, there doesn't appear to be any violation of the Nazarite vow. His hair begins to grow. There's no razor that has ever come to it. Uh, he refrains from certain things as far as his diet and, 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 and drink and so on. Uh, he is uh, not uh, touching anything that is dead or defiled in that way. And so his early life 
it does not appear there are any incidents of a violation. And in fact, in our text, as we read a moment ago, at the end of chapter 13, it says the Spirit of God moved him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. And as you go through the book of Judges, chapters 14, 15, and 16, you find a demonstration of God's power upon Samson. Now, I think I should clarify the fact that I don't think Samson was a Herculean-looking kind of a guy. I don't think Samson was one of these, you know, guys that kind of had muscles on top of muscles because nobody could figure out where his strength was. Nobody could understand how does this man do these things when he's just an ordinary looking guy. If he had been built like, you know, some kind of NFL player with all kinds of muscles and, 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 and size, people would have said, well, yeah, look at him. I mean, of course he can do those things. But Samson did not have a physique that was unusual, but he had an unusual power of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's amazing as you go through the account. In fact, look at chapter 14 and verse number 5. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he rent him, the lion, as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. This, this man, Samson, grabs this lion and with his bare hands tears him in half. Now, I don't know what would possess someone to even try that, right? But here's this lion that apparently attacks him, and he just, by the power of God, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It wasn't him. It wasn't his power. It wasn't his physical strength. But the Spirit of God moved on him to be able to do this amazing physical feat. Go to verse 19 of chapter 14. The Bible says, and the spirit of the Lord, there it is again, came upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. You might recall that Samson had, had uh, put a riddle upon the Philistines and, and uh, he knew they would never be able to solve that riddle. But they, uh, they got some inside information and, and figured it out. And so the bet was, or the, the, the wager was, that if they could expound this riddle, he had to provide for them uh, 30 changes of raiment. And so when he lost, he just goes and kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes and pays up. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes. And took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Have you ever tried to catch one fox? This guy catches 300 foxes. And then he ties them tail to tail, lights them on fire, sends them through the Philistines' cornfields and burns their crops. Amazing. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, and he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Edom. So here he kills those who had killed his wife. If we go to chapter 15 and verse 13, it says, And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill thee. 
And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came into Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. We read in chapter 15, look at verse 15. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. Just picked up a bone, just the skull of a, of a donkey, and kills a thousand men. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. And it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him in and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city and were quiet all the night, saying, In the morning, when it is day, we will kill him. And Samson lay till midnight and arose at midnight and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of a hill that was before Hebron. They tie him to this gate of the city. If you've ever seen these, these gates of the old cities, they were huge with large columns of, of, of cement or whatever, and they, they, they tie Samson to the gate of the city. And when they all went home to bed, he just stood up and walked off with the gate and all. Amazing power, amazing strength, all because of this demonstrated power of God upon his life. Listen, don't ever take for granted the power of God in your life. Don't ever take for granted the power that it took just to save you. I think sometimes we think, well, you know, God got a pretty good deal when he got me, actually. You know, I'll be a real asset in heaven, I'm sure. No, listen, by the grace of God, we are what we are. And the fact that Jesus Christ had to shed his very blood for forgiveness of our sins is an amazing fact. And the power that God had to demonstrate on our behalf just to save us. And then when God would use us in some way, when, when God would allow us to have a part in his work, in his ministry, uh, it's all to the glory of him, not to us. I think of the Apostle Paul who said, uh, when I came unto you, I came not with the excellency of speech and of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And it is the power of God that accomplishes anything through our lives or through our church or through the preaching of his word. And so, a demonstrated power. But then this whole thing turns sour because we see, thirdly, a distorted purpose. Now, each of us, no matter how blessed we are in the past, still have an old Adamic flesh. Your flesh did not get saved when you got saved. You still have it. You still have an old nature. All of us came into this world with that sinful nature. Did you know you don't have to sin to go to hell? If you lived your whole life and never committed one sin, you'd still go to hell. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the Son of God. We were born into this life a sinner. 
Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Paul said we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we come into this life by nature in our natural state, a sinner. Now, thank God. God is willing to save us. He's willing to save our soul. And we can be saved by the power of God. But we still have this old flesh. And until we're glorified, until we're with the Lord, until we see him, then we'll be like him. But until that time, we're battling a flesh. As Paul said, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. I would guess the Monday night crowd of a revival on a snowy night are people who want to do what God wants them to do. You wouldn't be here probably if that weren't the case. You, you want God's blessing in your life. You want God's power in your life. You want God to use you. You want your life to count for something eternally. But we're not going to be able to do the things that we would in our flesh. Because our flesh is an enmity against our spirit. The Apostle Paul recognized this in Romans chapter 7, where he said in verse 14, We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I would, I do not. And that which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He finally comes to the end of that chapter, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a battle, and we're going to be in that battle for as long as we're in this old physical man that we dwell in tonight. And there's that battle, and Samson faces that battle very unsuccessfully. And suddenly the purpose for his life becomes distorted. Let's go back. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Now again, God's commands were very clear to his people. They were not to intermarry with those nations that did not know their God. God did not allow the intermarriage of the Israelites with the Philistines because they had different gods. And he said, if you marry into those, those nations, they're going to pull you into their worship of their gods. And so God forbade them. And Samson would have known that, being raised as he was in a, a godly family in Israel. He would have known from his godly parents that to marry outside of Israel would be wrong. But he's not listening to God now. He's not listening to his authority in his life now. Get her for me. She pleaseth me well. We see the flesh 
there at work, don't we? We read in chapter 14, verse 8, and after a time he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. That's the one he ripped in half. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Do you remember the Nazarite vow? Not to touch any dead thing? Well, he's not worried about that now. He's hungry. He has an appetite. And that hunger uh, forces him to turn his back on what God had said and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have this. The Nazarite vow, what good is that? I'm hungry. I want to fulfill my flesh. And just as he wanted a woman that was not of God's choosing, now he is turning his back on another uh, of of the vows that he's made. Look at chapter 16 and verse 1. Then went Samson uh, to Gaza and saw there an harlot and went in at her. That hardly seems like something God would have him do. That hardly seems like something that God would have a man who he has designed to lead the nation of Israel uh, to victory over the enemy, the Philistines, and to serve God. That doesn't seem like something he ought to be doing. We go to chapter 16 and verse 15. The Bible says, And she, Delilah, said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart, and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has showed me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. Then she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. Another violation of the Nazarite vow. The hair of his head, now shorn. Samson's life is characterized by an occasional victory over the enemy here and there. But if you looked at his life as a whole, you would have to conclude that his life was filled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. A life that was to be dedicated, a life that was to fulfill the purpose that God had designed was now wasted, driven by human desire, driven by anger, driven by revenge, rather than by the purpose that God had for his life. Samson lives a life that is reactionary rather than intentional. Which word describes our our life tonight? Reactionary, I need this. I want this. This pleases me well. I'm hungry. Or is our life lived intentional? This is God's plan. This is God's will. 
I don't understand every detail of it, but I know this is what God would have me to do. What describes our life? Reactionary simply to what is all around us, what is within us, or is our life lived intentionally on the purpose of God? Because finally tonight we see a desperate prayer. In Judges 16 and verse 20, we find one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. You see, we get to the place where we think it is us that's doing all these things for God. We, We get to the place where we think, well, God used me. Because I have these talents, or I have these opportunities, or I have this personality. And and God blesses our life, and he uses us, and and he begins to work in our life and in our family. And we see his blessings in our church, and, and we start thinking, this is because of me. And then, suddenly, in that moment when we need God's power, and it's gone, we think, well, I can do this. And Samson shakes himself. I, I, yeah, I, I know now I've blown it, but, but I can go out as at other times before. But he wists not. How sad that we don't even recognize that we have not the power of God. We go through motions much like the church at Laodicea who thought they were rich, they were increased with goods, they had need of nothing. And God said, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You see, they thought they were fine. They thought all was good. And they didn't even realize that the very Christ who owned them was standing outside the door of the church knocking, trying to get in. They didn't even miss him. They didn't realize he was gone. And what a picture Samson is of that. He's doing all these things in in the power of God. and, and, And when he loses that power because of his own disobedience, he doesn't even realize it. That power's gone. We can't afford to lose God's power. We can't afford to lose God's blessing because Jesus said, without me, you are nothing. He didn't say, without me, you're a little bit. He said, without me, you're nothing. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. So verse 21 of chapter 16, but the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon, their God, and rejoiced for they said, our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. 
and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord. By the way, this is the first time since we met Samson in chapter 13. We have four chapters that give us his biography. This is the first time that we ever find him praying. First time. It's the first time he prays. And the Bible says he called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once. O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. Still a selfish prayer. Now the house was full of men and women. And Samson, verse 29, took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and which was borne up, the one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. Notice all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. More of God's will was accomplished in Samson's selfish suicide than it ever was throughout his entire life. Isn't that amazing? Samson's whole purpose, his whole design, the reason he breathed God's air on this planet was to deliver the nation of Israel from the Philistines. And he accomplished more of that in his selfish suicide than he ever did with all the years God gave him. How sad. Will we ever know what God intended to do through our life? You say, well, I don't think God has ordained that I be a deliverer to America, or I don't think God has determined that I'm to be a preacher or I I don't know that God's determined that I'm going to do these great things. Well, remember, we serve a God that unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. How? According to the power that worketh in us. We can evaluate our own life and say, well, you know, if I mess up my life, it's not going to hurt the cause too badly. I mean, if I mess up my life, a nation's not going to be destroyed. Uh, uh, You know, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But you don't know what God wants to do with your life. Will you let him? Will you let him have his way to accomplish the purpose that he designed for you. I'm glad that some people came into my life that allowed God to use them to reach me. And I'm sure you can think of people in your life that God allowed you to intersect with before you were saved. And because they followed God's will in witnessing to you or inviting you to church or giving you a tract or raising you as a mom and dad to hear the gospel at an early age. God used them to impact your life. And God has that same plan and purpose for your life. 
that he might use you to accomplish something bigger than yourself, bigger than what you could do on your own because of the power that he can place in your life when we are yielded to him. Will we live a reactionary life? What do I want today? I'll just go get it. Or will we live an intentional life that says no matter what I want, thy will be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you.